I will promise you one thing today. If you're, if you're like me and you're really tired of everything, every conversation, everything you see on television being about the coronavirus, I promise today, after these opening remarks, that this is a COVID-free sermon. I just want to promise you that today. So here's a question for you as we begin. If you had access to all the latest technology in a sophisticated science lab, what would be the most effective way to get all of the air out of this container? No, man, you guys are way too smart. Okay. Fill it with water. There you go. Now all the air is in this container and not in this container anymore. So, who, Rebecca, did you, you want to say that you've heard this before, right? Or you're just that smart? Okay. Or, or that smart Alec. <laughs> it's true, you know. You might think about all the different ways you could suck the air out, right? But the most effective and the easiest way is to fill this container with water rather than just leave the air in it. Now, for the scientists among us, I know, I know that there is oxygen in water. I understand that. But the air we breathe, like uh, in the empty container, has much more. And we're talking about air versus oxygen. And that's not necessarily the same thing, even though the air we breathe clearly contains oxygen. So this is only meant to be an illustration. So the scientists or some of you others who are going to be all sciencey and nitpicky on me, give me a break, okay? The idea here is that rather than sucking the air out of this container, the most efficient way to get it all out is to replace it with something different. In one sense, replacing the air with water, we're expelling the air from the container, and that leads us to this morning's key theme and the title of this morning's sermon, which is the expulsive power of a new affection. Now, Jim, I have to ask you, brother, did you cheat and look in the folder? Man, some of the songs you uh, picked this morning really nailed it, so we won't give you credit. We'll give the Holy Spirit credit for leading you in that. Expulsive, of course, is from the verb expel, right? So expulsive means driving out or expelling something. And we all have a pretty clear sense, I hope, of what affection is. It's not a synonym for love, but it's close, it's related. It's certainly not a synonym for agape love, which is the God kind of love that the Holy Spirit puts in our hearts. But it's similar to, there's another Greek word for love, storge, and it has a strong element of feelings attached to its meaning. This word is not used in the original Greek New Testament, but a compound of this is used in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, where it says, love one another with brotherly affection. In this verse, storge is combined with another Greek word, which means essentially brotherly love. So in our common understanding, affection is liking or caring for someone or something. It's a tender attachment. It's a fondness. And depending on what you like or what you care about or have an, a, tender, a tender attachment or feeling for, it can be good or it can be bad. In and of itself, affection is neutral. In many cases, 
having an affection for something or someone is not sin. It's not wrong. But here's our challenge this morning. Some affections can take a higher priority in our lives than they should. The Word tells us that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. While God can and does give us good things in our lives for which we feel deep affection, even those good things can become God things. And when that happens, those good things can become sinful things. Of course, it's also true that we can develop affectionate feelings for someone or something that are clearly sinful from the very beginning. These are the things that God never intended us to have affection for. So let's look at this from a more down-to-earth kind of everyday perspective. I might have a deep affection for a person. God placed that person in my life for me to love in an agape sense. And on top of that agape love, I've developed a deep affection for them. I can look around this room and see a lot of people that I have a deep affection for in addition to the agape love that I feel for all of you. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But perhaps, after some time, I neglect to keep this person's relationship with me in a proper balance. In other words, rather than give thanks and glory to the giver of this good gift in my life, and have a sense of enjoyment, the sense of blessing from God that God intended for me to have in this relationship, I concentrate on the gift of that person and place too much importance on that relationship. Now, again, don't hear me say, you know, relationships are good things. God gives us relationship. He intends for us to be in relationship. But I concentrate on the gift of this person, and I place too much importance on that relationship, and at that point... The good gift that God has given me can become an idol. I have let the gift take priority over the giver of that gift. Examples we could mention certainly go beyond people or relationships. I might focus on and have affection for, for example, the gift of leisure or the gift of comfort. We're all about comfort, aren't we? I might focus on the gift of some sort of recreation or sport or entertainment and become obsessed with this instead of the giver of that gift. It becomes something I can't do without. It might be a possession. It might be money. It might be a job. It might be a hobby. You get the idea. These are all good things when they are recognized in their proper God-given context. After all, every good and perfect gift, Scripture tells us, is from the Lord. Every good and perfect gift. And we need to see it that way. But the reverse of that is that we have affection for something that's clearly sinful. That's a little easier for us to see. If the Bible calls it sin and we develop an affection for it, then we have a problem. But here's the thing. The solution for both the obvious sin problem, on the one hand, the thing for which we have affection for which we have no right to have any kind of affection for, and the affection that all of us have for things that maybe aren't sinful in and of itself, but become sinful because we're focusing again on the gift rather than the giver, is the same solution. It's the same solution. We need a new, we need a bigger, greater, better affection to capture our hearts. That's how we change more and more into the image and likeness of Christ. That's how we're sanctified in Him. 
The idea of the expulsive power of a new affection is from a famous sermon. It's by a Scottish minister named Thomas Chalmers. He preached this message in the early 1800s. How do we grow in Christ? How do we see changes happen in our lives or in the lives of other believers? How do we kill sin in our lives? We sin because it's more pleasant and less painful than righteousness. It occurs to me that no one sins out of duty, though we can clearly develop sin habits, can't we? So Chalmers contends that being owned by sin is only broken by a stronger pleasure. A joy that's more compelling than that sin must replace that sin in your heart. The expulsive power of a new affection. This message by Thomas Chalmers illustrates what we need to move us from a life of sin and hostility towards God to one as a child of God. It is knowing and seeing and tasting God as the ultimate, infinitely valuable thing, person that he is, our ultimate good, our ultimate affection, seeing him as better than anything. Better is one day in your courts. Better is one day in your house than thousands elsewhere. Seeing him as better than anything, so much more than even the good gifts that he gives us. And he gives us good gifts, and we can enjoy them, and that's okay. That is the point of Chalmers' famous message, and it's an intended as an illustration of 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, which says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. How can we, as believers in Christ, be freed from our love for the world or the things of the world that are sinful? How can we get to the point that this love we have for Jesus is no longer a duty that we perform, but it's a delight that we prefer? We prefer the things of God. We prefer His presence in our lives. Not out of duty, but out of delight. It's a new affection before it can become a commitment in our lives. Now, there are different ways to overcome affections that have become idolatry in our lives. And one is to see how the world will let us down and isn't worthy of our affection to begin with. And, of course, that's true. Sometimes even the good things in our lives, they tend to let us down because we put more priority on them than we should. There's a lot of truth in that, just as there's a lot of truth in many self-help books. But this is like trying to take this container and suck the air out of it rather than replace it with something that displaces the air. It might help some but it won't bring lasting change in our hearts. And it won't be nearly as effective as this other way of overcoming the love of the world and stop loving created things more than we love our Creator. That's because the other way to overcome idolatrous affections is to show ourselves to realize, to meditate on the reality that God is incredibly more worthy of our love. He's incredibly more worthy of our affection than anything he has created. There's a song that says, you created nothing that gives me more pleasure than you. And it's true, my brothers and sisters. 
even the good things that he's created for us to enjoy. This is like filling up the glass with water. It expels the air. It's a new affection. Why do you think there are so many self-help books for people looking to change? Because though they may provide some help, they don't really work. They don't work. While we're in this earthly body, there will always be more sanctifying, more changing in our lives if we're in Christ. But here's the good news. There is good news, and it's the gospel. It's the gospel. The work has already been done, my brothers, my sisters. The work has already been done. When I'm in Christ, then Jesus, through his cross and resurrection, defeated my sin. He conquered death for me. His grace not only saved my soul, but his grace is what changes me throughout the course of my Christian life until the day I die. And then, on that day, he makes me perfect when I'm in his presence. This is an issue that arises again and again in the lives of most believers I know. I probably had a conversation with some of you about this idea. TCF's a church that has emphasized discipleship, the process of growing in Christ and being made more Christ-like. God, thank God, did not save us just to leave us where he found us at the moment of our salvation. He saved us, and then he works throughout our lives to sanctify us. But just as we all know that salvation is by God's grace through faith, we could all say that backwards, forwards, in and out, we understand that. We must constantly remind ourselves of the gospel, the good news, in the lifelong, ongoing process of sanctification. We all get what the Word tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, that not one would boast, not as a result of works. That's pretty clear, isn't it? That's pretty clear. Grace, right? It's not of ourselves. There's nothing we can work up. There's nothing we can boast about. It's not a result of what we do. It's not a result of our works. That's how we're saved. And that's good news because we see in the Word and in our lives so clearly that we are patently unable to do the good works we need to do consistently, constantly to be saved. We are incapable of keeping the law, obeying God's commandments apart from Christ. We can't do it. But too often we skip the next verse, Ephesians 2.10, which says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has prepared in advance so that we would walk in them, live them out. So even the good works that we do after he has saved us by grace through faith, God prepared for us to do in advance before he even saved us. It's an awesome thing to ponder. Anything good you say, think, or do today, God prepared it. He prepared it for you to do in advance. So in a very real sense, the discipleship that we so often rightly emphasize here in this church is not about obeying God. Now before you just shake your head, all Bill's gone off the deep end, no, it's it's not about obeying God, Uh uh-oh, look out. Don't hear me say that obedience is not important. It is critically important. But our motivation for obeying God often feels more like work than like worship. Did you think about that? 
It feels more like work. Obedience feels more like work, something we got to work up and do and grit our teeth and make it happen than about worship. We don't obey to be free. We obey because we are free, because He has set us free, because He has made us free in Christ. So just as salvation is not about works, neither is sanctification, the process of changing us day by day into the image and likeness of Christ. Neither is that about work. Grace is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. When we obey from our hearts, what are we doing? We are worshiping the God who saved us. When we obey from our hearts, we are worshiping the God who saved us. That's why we need to be constantly, increasingly gospel aware, or what one author called gospel awakened. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. By grace you are saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. We need to preach that to ourselves today and every day. Just a quick note, some of the thoughts in this message are from two books that I can highly recommend, and both are by an author named Jared Wilson. Interesting if anybody has read these books. One's called The Imperfect Disciple. Anybody read that? Another one's called Gospel Wakefulness. Now, think about that, The Imperfect Disciple. Anybody want to own up to that? I think that's all of us. Discipleship doesn't mean there's no more effort on our part, but truly gospel-driven sanctification remembers this constantly, that we are not holy or being made holy because we work. We work because we are holy in Him. We're not called saints in Scripture because we're saintly, and we are called saints in Scripture. That's all of us who are in Christ. We are saints. We're called saints because God the Father sees us through the lens of the blood of Jesus, God's Son, who saved us from our sins. Now, you think, okay, well, it's kind of a nitpicky point. No, it's not. If we don't get this order right, we don't get Christianity right. We see this comparing and contrasting of our part, on the one hand, our part, and on the other hand, God's part. In our growth in Christ, we see it throughout the New Testament. We see it in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So verse 1, we see of Hebrews chapter 12, indicates effort on our part. We are to lay aside those things that hold us back. We are to lay aside that sin that entangles us. We are to run with endurance this race of the Christian life. Those are things we do. Yet verse 2 tells us how are we to do this? Work harder. No. It doesn't say work harder. It says fixing our eyes on Jesus. And who is Jesus? He's not just the author, the founder of our faith. That means he is the one who saved us. But he's also the one who brings us to perfection. He perfects our faith, Hebrews tells us. And he did it for the joy 
that was set before him. We see this idea of fixing our eyes, or we see it in some other passages as beholding, as part and parcel of our sanctification. Another verse that uh, looks at this idea is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It says, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So what we must do is fix our eyes on Jesus and behold the glory of the Lord. Beholding is kind of a strong word in these verses where we see it. It implies more than just a passing glance, like, oh, yeah, I I caught that out of the corner of my eye. It implies fixing our eyes and beholding. They're, They're not exact synonyms, but it's the same idea. And what do we see when we fix our eyes or behold? We see the gospel. We see the gospel. We see the good news of what Jesus has already done for us. We see Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We see him enduring the cross for me and for you. We see him now seated at the right hand of God in glory, interceding for us daily in our daily weakness. And we see this gospel transforming us, remaking us day by day, even hour by hour into the same image. What image is that? That image is the glory of our Lord Jesus, more like Him. But you know what? In the day-to-day of our lives, we don't spend much time beholding the glory of the Lord. We don't spend much time fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's because we do spend a lot of time fixing our eyes or beholding things that are small, things that don't mean as much. These things, again, may or may not be bad things. Some of them may be even good things. Some of them may be even important things. Some of them may be some of God's good gifts to us. But compared to Jesus, compared to Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, compared to the glory of the Lord, they are infinitesimally small. Don't you like that word? Infinitesimally. Say that five times real fast. When our vision is constantly occupied by small things, we are tempted to yawn more at the glory of God. What this boils down to is that we have fundamentally a worship problem. And so long as we are occupying our minds with little worldly things and puny worldly messages, we will shrink our capacity to behold the eternal glory of Jesus Christ, which is the antidote to all that ails us. Yes, the gospel is better than the law. And yes, beholding is better than behaving. This is why, as odd as it sounds, making your entire Christian life about trying to look like a good Christian is a great way to become a terrible Christian or at least a weak and defeated one. Everything we look for everywhere else but God can only be found in God. Satisfaction 
contentment, peace, love, joy, provision, beauty, just to name a few. Seeing these things in the realm of created things or people is intended to point us to the Creator. You think about that? When we see contentment, when we see peace, when we experience love or joy, when we see beauty, it's intended not to embrace those things as the be-all and end-all. It's intended to point us to our Creator. A perfect example... I think I've gone a step ahead. Oh, I got the wrong... Okay. Perfect example is where Barb and I are headed this week. The beauty of God's creation in the mountains. And just yesterday, I watched the first part of a documentary about America's national parks. Anybody ever seen that PBS, uh, The National Parks, America's Best Idea? It's a great series. And the title of the first episode of that was The Scripture of Nature. Isn't that interesting? A small sidebar, a relative of Jim Grinnell was mentioned in this. George Bird Grinnell, he was mentioned in this. But don't we see that many people end up worshiping creation because it's so majestic, it's so beautiful, right? But this creation is meant to direct our hearts to the one who made it. It's not meant for us to embrace. But we get stuck with the created things and end up worshiping created things rather than worshiping our creator. It's easy to see this in the world, right? It's easy to look out and look around and read the news and see things going on and see how people are worshiping created things. You don't have to look very far. It's not as easy for us to see this in our own hearts as believers in Christ. And so for us to just look out there and see in the world, we'd be missing the point here because it is out there in the world and the Scripture is very clear about that. It's easier for us to see in the context of our desire to overcome sin. Chalmers said, We have already affirmed how impossible it were for the heart by any innate elasticity of its own to cast the world away from it and thus reduce itself to a wilderness. The heart is not so constituted. The only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. He goes on to say that because of our sin nature, doing something like trying to suck the sin out of our hearts, as in our opening illustration of thinking about how to suck the air out of the container, it's just not that effective. It's just not that effective. Only replacing that old affection with a new affection will conquer sin. And then the irony of that is we may begin to enjoy the good things that God gives us more We can enjoy them more because we'll see them as entirely blessings from Him and not the source of our satisfaction. Our satisfaction will be completely in Him. When the heart treasures Christ and savors His power, sin grows bitter. Even good gifts that God made delicious recede to their proper flavors. Good things we have made, God things, don't cease to be good. In fact, they continue to provide pleasures and satisfactions, but they keep their proper functions and blessings in service to the common grace the God of glory ascribes them. With God at the center of your universe of worship, with the gospel at the center of your life, all other good gifts, people and pleasures, thoughts 
and things take their proper place and proportion in our lives. They are more pleasing and enjoyable because they give the pleasures they are designed to give and no more. However, when the center of our universe, the center of our affections, is anything or anyone but God, we become idolaters. When we worship created things rather than the creator of those things, we end up abusing what we worship because those created things that we worship were not meant, ever meant, to be the object of our affections in that way. So what we need is not less affection. What we need is renewed and redirected affection. We need to be satisfied by the right things. When we have the power of this new affection in Christ, our affections are redirected to the source of all good things. One of the ways God uses to bring this about in all of his children, and think about this, is brokenness. Why else would we see in the word that pain and suffering are so crucial to the process of our sanctification? The Apostle Paul gets at this idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning with verse 7. He writes, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Has anybody else noticed this? You don't seem to grow as much in Christ when things are really comfortable in your life kind of too bad. Wouldn't you like to learn to grow a little bit more when things are going really well? We don't seem to feel the need for God as much. Things are fine. Why do I need God? Now, we would never articulate that, but that's the way we behave. But in the pain of life, we definitely, we definitely, in the pain of life, see the need to rely on Him because we can't do anything without Him. Of course, that's true even when life is smooth. We deceive ourselves if we think we can do anything without him, even when life is smooth. We just don't seem to see that quite as clearly. We never graduate from our salvation. We never graduate. Even after we are saved, we always daily need the gospel. Paul wrote to the Philippians, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, we see Paul urging the Philippians here to work out their salvation, and that might seem to suggest that salvation is earned by what we do. But as we've just seen from Ephesians, and we can see from many other places in Scripture, that can't be true. So in this passage, Paul is talking about salvation in terms of experiencing all that salvation brings, all the blessings of salvation. So obedience is, in this sense, part of working out our salvation. But here we see again that even this obedience is empowered by the Holy Spirit who lives inside the believer in Christ. It is God, Paul writes, who works in you. It is God who works in your will, too. 
says he works in your will. That means he gives you the wanna. You want to do it? He gives you the wanna. He works in what you do. He empowers you to make obedient choices. The Philippians were not told to work for their salvation. They were told to work out the salvation that God had already given them. He had already purchased for them on the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The only way this could be done was through God who would enable them to do it. Paul has a similar kind of both and in Colossians chapter 1, verse 29. He writes, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, his meaning God, all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So yes, there's effort, right? Paul says, I toil. That's one way of describing effort. He also says that he struggles. But how does he do this? He does this with God's energy, that God works within him. Paul also spent much of the book of Galatians trying to undermine the idea that after we're saved, it's entirely up to us to grow in Christ and to conquer sin. We read in Galatians chapter 3, 3, Paul says, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, the Holy Spirit entered your heart when you were saved, Paul says. Paul calls it a foolish idea that their perfection, their sanctification, is now based on their own efforts now that they're saved. Okay, thank, thank you, God, for saving me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to carry, I'll, I'll carry the ball from here, right? He says, no, that's foolish. So when we have a new affection, we have a growing awareness of what Jesus has done and what he has already accomplished for us. This means we keep coming back to that time that we were saved. And it brings more gratitude. It brings more confidence in him and less confidence in ourselves. More understanding of how broken we really are apart from him. More awareness of our daily, incredibly deep need for him. The truth is that we worship our way into sin. And the way to get out of sin is that we worship our way out, but we worship something new, something better, the new affection that God has given us in Christ. Wherever our affections are set is where our behavior will go. The Christian faith is really unique if you think about it. This is nothing new. Some of you have heard this, I'm sure. The heart of the gospel message is in three words. And these three words are the words that Jesus himself spoke from the cross. It is finished. If you think about it, pretty much every other religion, we could go down the list, every other religion is some semblance of three other words. Get to work. Get to work. If we hang on too tightly to the idea that how we change, how we grow, has everything to do with get to work and little to do with it is finished, we won't have that energy that Paul described to the Colossians that works powerfully within him. We will not experience freedom in religion's three words. That's because get to work doesn't work. We must first be set free by the gospel's three words that Jesus spoke from the cross. It is finished. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, had a great little ditty that talks about this idea too. He wrote, run, John, run, the law commands. 
but gives neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Isn't that good? It's counterintuitive, but being always aware of the reality of the good news makes us work more and it makes us work harder the more this new affection captures our hearts. Yet the gospel means we do this out of a sense of gratitude, not out of a sense of obligation. The gospel creates what the law requires. I think, I look around this room, and I think, my brothers and sisters, we all want to change, don't we? We all want to change. We all want to be more like Jesus, don't we? Don't we want to be more like Jesus? Don't we want to see sin rooted out of our lives? Don't we want to love like Him? But often, so many of our efforts to change are simply condemning the affections we have that we know are idolatrous or sinful without that expulsive power of a new affection. Grace-driven effort flows from the joys and wonders of worship that flow from beholding the amazing gospel of God's grace. The gospel is not advice. It's good news. It's not do more, be more, try more. It's the message that the work is done. The gospel does not say pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It says it is finished. It's my prayer this morning that God would build in all of us the expulsive power of a new affection. And I know that we all have that in us somewhere already, but I want it to grow more and more, enabling us and equipping us to grasp how high, how long, how wide, how deep is the love of Christ. And that this new worshipful affection for Jesus would equip us to grow in Christ, made more and more each day into his image. And so I want to close with this passage of Scripture. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.